0: Good to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Lewis, if we've never met, uh, I'd love to catch up with you after the service and get to know you uh, a little bit. Oh, can I grab that from? You? Thanks. Um, Abby and I, my wife Abby and I were in Rome a few weeks ago on a, a baby moon, trying to get away before she gives birth to her first. And um, we had a great time, and uh, we had been to all the sites, the Colosseum and the Vatican and all this stuff, and uh, the weather wasn't great when we were there. And we're walking down the street and hailstones start to fall and a uh, random side street in Rome we think we're just there's an open church we're just gonna go in get some shelter from the rain and uh, we just thought hey, a small church we will just take refuge in there and inside of this random door literally a random alleyway it's just the most incredible church and the outside it's just a stone wall but on the inside made of gold, there's art on the ceiling, domes everywhere, there's all these wood carvings. The outside seemed so ordinary. We were walking past. If it hadn't started to rain, we wouldn't have even blinked. But it wasn't until we investigated, it wasn't until we stepped inside that the actual glory of the place was revealed to us. And John, in his account of Jesus' life, he's been inviting us to investigate the glory of Jesus that lies behind the kind of ordinary human exterior. We said in the first few weeks of our series in this glorious book that John just puts all of his cards on the table. First 18 verses, he doesn't mess around. He just says, hey, here's who Jesus is. Here's what I have seen. And then he spends 20 chapters just unpacking what he's already said. Here's the cards he lays down in his prologue. Very simple, he says, Jesus is God become flesh. He's the Messiah, the revealed glory of God, through whom and in whom there is life for those who believe. That's John's Gospel, and in a nutshell that is the Gospel of John, and he just teases that thread out for 20 chapters, and one of the ways he does that is through what he calls signs. Throughout the gospel, Jesus performs seven signs that demonstrate his glory. They help us to step in off of the street and see the glory that lies behind the facade. This morning, we come to the first sign of John's gospel, the kind of crescendo of the first set of stories that we've been working through. And it is a familiar story. Some of us are raised in church, know a lot about the Bible and we feel like we've heard the story a million times. But God is inviting us this morning to step in off the rainy street. Not just to see the kind of uh, stone exterior, but to step in and see the gold, to see the glory. So thought to just pray for us before we do that. Like God to give us fresh eyes to see who Jesus is. Why don't we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that when we mine it, we always find treasure, Lord. We always find the glory of God revealed in Jesus, Lord. That is what we want to see this morning. Would you open our eyes, Lord? We don't want to come away having uh, just learned some Bible facts. We want to come away having seen and beheld the glory of God. Show us Jesus this morning, Lord. That's all we ask. In his name. Amen. All right, our passage begins like this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine first century Jewish weddings were not like our weddings. When Abby and I got married five years ago, the most excruciating process was trying to know who was invited and who wasn't. Who do I really like enough to come? Who is my mum kind of trying to pressure me into inviting that I don't really like, but she likes? There's a limited number of spots at the table, right? The hall that we meet in tends to have 100 seats and we can't exceed and the caterer has a limit. And so we start to pick and choose who is worthy of attending. But at Jewish weddings, they didn't think like that at all. They would just cast a net. They would invite everyone they knew, and then they would invite everyone that they knew. It was a big community event. The whole town or village or region would sometimes be in attendance. (coughs) You can imagine being the bride or groom, looking across the party, and you don't actually recognize some of the faces. So our mystery couple, they've kind of cast a net, they've invited the community, and the way that John words these opening verses suggests that Jesus himself is one of these guests of a guest. A couple of his disciples are from Cana, and John starts by saying Jesus' mum was invited. So maybe Jesus doesn't even know this couple to look at. Here's a couple that may have accidentally found themselves playing host the son of god what a wedding what's going to happen they just hey everyone come all of our friends our friend mary's coming and she brings her son the messiah and the build-up to the wedding in jewish culture the groom's job was to get everything ready so a couple would get engaged and then the groom would prepare a house for him and his bride and he would prepare all of the food and the drink for the wedding. Once his preparations were done the wedding could start and everyone would celebrate. You can imagine everyone in this room plus all of our families and friends gathering in one big party and you are responsible for feeding them all. There's a huge pressure on the groom in first century Jewish culture. The most shameful and embarrassing thing that could happen would be to run out of wine. What's a wedding without wine? The guests wouldn't just think, ah, the party's ruined. No, they would think, this guy's not able to take care of his wife. He's not worthy to get married. And so when Mary approaches Jesus and says, they have no more wine, we want to hear her tone for what it actually would have been. Like dragging him to the side and whispering, Jesus. Can you believe it? They've run it. He's run out of wine. What are we going to do? The party is in full swing and any minute it's about to come crashing to a halt. We were at a wedding last summer when the catering took a lifetime. You know the feeling, everyone's stomachs are grumbling, everyone's getting itchy, it's horrible. The band is sitting over in the corner waiting to start. What a nightmare for this groom not just the party is ruined but his reputation is on the line mary obviously feels bad for this guy and he she tells jesus she sneaks up and says jesus we have to do something we might res- expect jesus to respond in a different way I think man if i was the son of god and could very easily turn water into wine, why would I respond by saying, women, why do you involve me? Women, why do you involve me? Let me just be clear, if I had ever called my mum, woman, <laughs> I would have been smacked around the back of the head. It seems bizarre. All she says is, Jesus, they're out of wine. She says, woman. Is Jesus being disrespectful? Does he not care about the wedding party? Does he not care about what his mum has to say to him? Well, we need to put ourselves in Mary's shoes to really understand this. Joseph doesn't get a mention in the story. We can presume that he has already passed away. She's come to really learn to trust in Jesus as her son, as the one who will care for her. women needed a, a husband or a son to look after them in her culture. And she seems to have learned to look to Jesus. To provide for her needs. And so with that in mind, I think she <clears throat> approaches Jesus. Not saying, Jesus my Lord, do a miracle. They've run out of wine. I think she says, Jesus my son, I have a problem. Can you please solve it for me? Mary approaches Jesus not as Lord, but as son and Jesus knowing what is just about to happen the road that he is just about to start on he rebukes her this is a pattern all through John's gospel we see Jesus loves his mom deeply but continually distances himself from her it's a story where Jesus is hanging out and he's teaching and somebody runs in and says Jesus your mother and brothers are outside he says who is my mother anyone who does the will of God. Jesus loves his mother but he wants to distance himself from her in a way. Here's what he wants her to hear. Nobody, not even the mother of Jesus, gets to escape the reality of the Lordship of Christ. He calls her woman to remind her you are still a woman. You are still just a woman. Not to demean her, To let her know that he is more than just a son. He is the one before whom every knee must bow. None of us get to come to Jesus demanding things. Oh Lord, I've known you for 20 years, so won't you just do this for me? No, he says, bow down. I'm Lord. Jesus follows up this statement with this. My hour has not yet come in John's gospel Jesus's hour is always referring to the hour of his death now we'll come back to this but put yourself in Mary's shoes again your son rebukes you and says hey I'm not just your son I'm your lord and then he looks you in the eyes as though to say you know where this road is going to lead Mary was told when Jesus was conceived, a sword will pierce your heart also. Meaning there will come a day where you watch your son be crucified. Now imagine your son looks you in the eyes and says, if I perform a miracle here, you know where the road will end. We might even imagine some tenderness between mother and child. Are you sure? Are you ready for me to do this? Mary provides us with a stunning example of faith. Verse 5, do whatever he tells you. I love this picture. Mary is faced with the prospect of the death of her son at the end of this road. And she looks to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. This is the pattern in her life. When the angel of the Lord came to announce to her that she would be pregnant with Jesus, she said, let it be done to me according to your word. Mary's life was a life given over in faith to the will and the word of God. Hey, I think if you're a Christian, that's the legacy that you want your life to leave as well. Her words challenge us. They're kind of directed at us through the centuries like a prophetic call. Are we willing to do whatever Jesus tells us? Are we willing to say, let it be done to me according to your word? Do you see him as he is? Not just as a man. Not just as someone you've tacked onto your life. Not just as a good teacher that helps you get through the week, but as Lord. Are you willing to put your faith in his words and do whatever he tells you? Mary has stunning faith, and it's this faith that opens the door to Jesus' first public miracle. Have a look with me at verse 6 onwards. It says, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. I just want you to notice how simply this all happens. There's no flash of light, there's no abracadabra, there's no theatrics, there's no attention seeking. Do this, he says, and they do. And everything changes. All they have to do is fill some jars with water and take them across the room. Frederick Dale Brunner writes this on this passage. He says, we do simple things like trustingly obey. He does saving things like rescuing a wedding party from shame. We do simple things and he does saving things. The master of the feast calls the groom and he starts to rant and rave about how good this new wine is. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best until now. Very few people know what has happened. The servants know, Mary knows, presumably Jesus lets his disciples know, but that's it. Jesus performs his first miracle with almost no fanfare, draws almost no attention to himself. It's like the humility of Jesus is astonishing. If I could turn water into wine, Be standing on a table at every wedding I could ever go to with a big sign. Bring your water to me. His heart is far more concerned with saving this groom from shame than it is with his own fame. The heart of Jesus. He is humble. He is gentle and he is kind. And the master of the feast, he utters a word that is truer than he knows. Jesus performed his first miracle and this wedding party is saved. But wine is just wine. This is just a wedding after all. But As John writes in verse 11, this was the first sign that revealed the glory of Jesus. The wine is just wine, but Jesus is revealed to those few that notice that he is the best wine saved till last. So, I just want to spend the rest of our time answering this question. How does Jesus reveal his glory through this miracle? What glorious interior is waiting on the other side of this door? Well, here are two ways that Jesus reveals his glory in this miracle first, he is the abundant creator, second, he is the abundant savior. Well, first, Jesus is the abundant creator. John began his gospel account with a long summary of who Jesus is. And in verse three, he said this. He said, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. John's point is simple. Behind everything we see in this world, trees and dogs and stars and love and joy and atoms, lies one person. If you were to peel back the layers of the universe like an onion, at the center you would find that the source of all things is Jesus. That's John's claim and he offers us this miracle as a kind of first proof of that claim. The first thing to say is that for Jesus this is nothing extraordinary. In fact, this is the kind of thing that Jesus does. This is his wheelhouse. Turning water into wine is his everyday practice. Even today, rain will fall from the sky onto vineyards, and through an elaborate process, wine will come. But it is still the work of Jesus. Augustine put it this way. He said, this miracle of our Lord's is no miracle at all to those who know that God worked it. For the same one who that day made wine in the water pots every year makes wine in the vine. Therefore, God keeps some act in store to rouse us out of our lethargy and make us worship him. In other words, all the wine at this party was made by Jesus. There is nothing that exists that was created by anyone else. By whatever elaborate process it comes to us, everything good comes through Jesus, all he's doing here is revealing his glory. He's revealing what has always been true about him. And it's as though he stands before us again through this passage and says, look at me, everything you love, everything you're grateful for, everything good you have is from Jesus. Maybe you're not a Christian here, but you're into kind of practicing gratitude. This is a, what a common thing today to say, I'm going to start my day with gratitude. Gratitude, the feeling we have when we have a great meal and we think, ah, oh, thank you, that was so good. That is Jesus' hard wiring into your brain to remind you about him. It's the coding deep within you that means you can't fully forget him. It means that when you have a flat white, you can't help but subtly praise Jesus. (laughs) Who are we praising? When we sit in the morning and say, what am I grateful for today? It's Jesus that is the source. And we can't help it. Whether we know it or not, we every day find ourselves praising Jesus because he is the maker of all good things. But John is doing a bit more than that. He's not just creator, he's the one who brings a new creation. We've been kind of teasing for a few weeks that John is crafting something of a new creation week in these opening chapters. He's told us who Jesus is, and then he takes us on this week-long journey through Jesus' first steps in life and through his kind of calling of his first disciples. And each story, John has said, the next day, Jesus and so on and the beginning of our passage today he says on the third day there was a wedding and the third day from the last story that John is told is the seventh day of this new week and so here is Jesus the creator God the one who is from the beginning who made all things and sustains all things doing what he has always done but doing it again In Genesis, on the seventh day, the creation, we culminates in God sitting down and saying, behold, this good creation again here. Jesus turns water into wine. He isn't just reminding us of Genesis. He's creating a whole new thing. He's doing something brand new in the world. That's what John wants us to see. Jesus is a new creation. See, wine throughout the Bible is a symbol of God's goodness and the joy that we have in response. The prophets use wine as a picture of God's people one day living in peace and joy. For the prophet Isaiah, wine is a symbol of the abundant life that God really offers us. Here's what he wrote in Isaiah 55. It says, Come, all you who are thirsty, Come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Isaiah looked forward through time and said, something new is coming. And now Jesus says, here I am. Jesus is announcing that in his coming, a new world of joy and fullness is born. In Jesus, everything changes comes to remake all things and promises that one day this world in all of its brokenness by his hand that doesn't just mean that we can look at turkey and syria and say lord thank you that one day that won't happen anymore that is true praise god but also means that you can look at yourself and say thank you lord that you can remake me The Jesus who created everything in the beginning has the power to remake your life from nothing. That leads us on to the second way that Jesus's glory is revealed here. Yeah, he's the abundant creator, but he's also the abundant savior. GK Chesterton was a Christian writer who lived in the early 1900s and Out in 1906, a London newspaper put out a request for people to write an article answering this question. What is wrong with the world? Now I wonder how you would answer that question. If you were given free reign to get an article in The Sun, what is wrong with the world? What would you write? Maybe you would write about income, inequality, discrimination, G.K. Chesterton responded by writing the editor a brief letter. I just want to read you the whole letter. Here it is, he says, Dear Sirs, regarding your article, what is wrong with the world? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. I am. Chesterton had the chance to address any hobby horse he wanted. He'd go wax lyrical with any political issue, and instead he chose to point the finger at himself. Why? Because he understood what the Bible teaches. The problem at the heart of our world is sin. The problem is that you and I have willfully chosen to reject this God of creation, chosen to disobey his commands, and the consequences are tragic. We said earlier that wine is a representation of all the goodness of God, And so when, Jesus, when Mary comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine, we're supposed to hear something more than just, oh, this wedding party isn't going very well. This world is running on empty. This world has no wine. Our willful disobedience of the Creator means that the whole world has gone off kilter. G.K. Chesterton was right. What is wrong with the world? Me. You. Our sin is what is wrong with the world. Here's the reality. We are all sinners in need of grace. Things have been done by you and to you that have broken your soul. I'm not saying that because I've snooped on your WhatsApp, I've gotten some dirt on you. Saying it because it's true of every person in here, of me and of you. And so John records a detail that is supposed to tip us off to something profound about Jesus. Look at verse six again, we're tipped off to the fact that the jars that Jesus fills were for Jewish rites of purification. Now for Jews in this day, almost anything would make them unclean before God. Jewish priests had to wash before entering the tabernacle. The book of Leviticus prescribes various kind of washings for ordinary people to perform so that they can deal with this kind of ritual uncleanness. But somewhere along the line, God's people thought that they could actually make themselves clean this way that they could actually deal with the problem of sin by cleaning themselves on the outside with sacrifices and rituals. Jesus rebukes the religious leaders of his day. He says, you're like graves. You're pretty on the outside, flowery, but on the inside you are all bones. He says, you're like a cup that has come out of the dishwasher. The outside might be sparkling, but inside something grimy has got stuck. Just like the ancient Jews, we believe that we can solve the longing and sin in our lives by just cleaning the outside of the cup, by doing enough good deeds, by getting our lives together or making sure we're not just as messed up as the person over there. Our standard for what makes a good person is tend to, tends to be just below how good we are. You think, oh, look, I, I know I'm messed up, but I'm basically a good person. That guy over there, That he's the one we need to be watching. We are experts at making ourselves feel like everything is fine. The writer Michael Foley put it this way, he said, our talent for self-justification is surely the finest flower of human evolution, the greatest achievement of the human brain, When it comes to justifying ourselves, every human being acquires the intelligence of an Einstein and the imagination of a Shakespeare. In other words, as Jesus would put it, we are whitewashed tombs. We love to give ourselves the appearance of goodness on the outside when we are dying inside. So Jesus does something radical. He takes these cleansing jars and he fills them to the top, and from the water that can only clean the outside, he makes wine. Later in John's gospel, Jesus will take a cup of wine and say, "This is my blood." poured out for the sins of many. Jesus is the one. He's the only one who can clean us on the inside. He takes these six jars of ceremonial water, which is the equivalent of about 900 bottles of wine today, and he turns them into wine in abundance. Why? To show us this. The blood of Jesus in all of its abundance is enough to cover every sin you have ever committed. That in him alone you can find cleansing. Spending our lives clawing at becoming clean on the outside, trying to feel like we've done enough is useless. The jars are filled full. The old system of cleansing the body is over. Our old attempts at making ourselves feel acceptable aren't needed anymore because the blood of Jesus is enough. I love the way this passage is structured. They've run out of wine. They have drank deeply of this old system. And guess what? It hasn't worked. I wonder if you're here today thinking, I've tried everything. I mean, I, I've tried everything to heal the woundedness in my soul. I've tried everything to kick this behavior that I just can't kick. I can't do it. I can't forgive myself for what I've done. I can't face life like this anymore. Well, the old is gone. Something new is here. Jesus today offers you life in abundance. Through his blood. He offers you forgiveness. For your sins. He offers you hope when life feels heavy. And weary. He offers you a new life. He can make you clean. To enter the presence of God. I became a Christian at 19 years old. All of this means that the Lewis Cameron that lived for 19 years, who attempted to justify himself and clean up the mess in his soul with all kinds of nonsense, he's gone. He is dead in his place. Something new, new wine, a new creation. I wonder how long you've been trying to make your own life worthwhile. If you're a Christian, how often do you revert back to trying to justify yourself, to cleaning the outside of the cup while the inside is filthy? You say, like, Lord, look at my good deeds. Look at how I helped. I came early this morning. I set up chairs. I try not to swear this week. Lord, I'm doing my best. And none of that justifies you. None of that does anything to God, the only thing that has any impact on how God views you is the blood of Jesus Christ. He looks to us and he says, take my cleanliness and I'll take your filthiness. Jesus invites us this morning to be like the head waiter at this wedding. Taste the wine and says, you saved this until last. Jesus is the best wine saved until now. Everything we have tried is old and useless. Jesus has come. He is the one that is making everything new. He is the one that can cleanse you inside out. All we have to do is come to him. All we have to do is come to him and he will transform us and cleanse us and give us new life.